Welcome back to the Energy Today podcast. As always, I'm your host, Jackson Roos, and let's get into it. So do apologize for any background noise that you might be hearing. I'm inside, but I'm recording it pretty close to a pretty busy street, so do apologize about that. Um, looking into markets over the past week, and specifically the stock market, it was pretty choppy, and we saw quite a bit of broad sell-offs uh, culminating, culminating today, actually, in the Dow dropping around 500 basis points, which, which is pretty significant. Um, this really comes off of the back of this broad narrative right now about, about inflation and prices being um, a big concern in the U.S. economy. Additionally, the Fed talked about in their policy meeting this week of raising interest rates towards the back half of 2023 and even about the possibility of ending its bond buying program, which signifies pretty broadly to the market that the Fed is getting a little bit uncomfortable um, with how things are going in the market and how prices are heating up. Um, And there's an incredible amount of money and bonds that the Federal Reserve has printed and bought over the past year or so. There's a bunch of stats about the amount of dollars in existence and the percentage that have been increased uh, over the past year during the pandemic. But regardless, um, their monetary policy uh, has really influenced our economy quite a bit. So the idea of them talking about raising rates really brings into concern for uh, investors and speculators alike about the Fed's role going forward. And kind of translating this into more of a commodity side of things, there have been quite a bit of um, pockets or corners of the commodities markets that continue to march higher, um, including oil products, um, such as gasoline and, and conventional crude oil. Um, we've actually seen oil prices sort of level off over the past few days, settling at around at around $71 per barrel. And there was actually a pretty interesting piece that I read on oilprice.com discussing how WTI, which is US's, the U.S. main ga- gauge for oil, um, how it's converging with Brent, which is the international gauge, and Brent uh, up there by the Brent Sea is... Right, kind of where, um, not the Brent Sea, um, by the North Sea, um, converging with their price range. Because typically, Brent trades at a premium to WTI, and that generally stems from transportation costs associated with the North Sea. Um, But lately, due to rising demand for oil here in the U.S., as the big story is vaccinations and reopenings and demand and airfare and travel and national parks and all of these things, um, combining that with relatively flat production coming out of the U.S., we're still sitting at around 11 million barrels per day um, of output, down around 2 million barrels per day from before the pandemic. So that's stayed relatively the same. Um and then you can combine that with rising oil demand and uh, a stronger dollar um, due to inflation concerns. And we're starting to see that bridge uh, gap, uh, that bridge uh, narrow quite a bit. Um, so there's about a $2 premium uh, at the moment between Brent and WTI. So another point in the news, I'm not going to expand on it too much because I've talked about it quite a bit, um, but about President Biden's um 
stance uh, on energy and how they uh, ban drilling on federal lands. Well, a judge actually just ruled that um, it's illegal to do that or ban also ban the leasing of those federal lands. So that'll be interesting to see how that plays out. I'm sure there'll be more developments um, regarding that going forward. So bullish news for, I guess, the oil and gas industry. Bearish news, I suppose, for um, people that don't want you to drill on, on federal lands. Uh, I, I really don't know enough about the argument between the two. Um, I know oil and gas companies are very safe in their practices. And there's a lot of misconceptions centered around that, about how oil and gas companies really do want to protect and preserve the environment. And there's a lot of steps and processes that go in place before, during, and after drilling a well. Um, so I would have no doubt that they would be a great steward of the federal lands. That they would be given the uh, right that they would pay for, of course, uh, to the federal government, which helps their budgets. Um, they would be a good steward of that land. Um, so it'll be interesting to see kind of where that where that moves on to going forward. So looking at OPEC, like we always do here on the show, um, actually talking about a meeting that the Economic Commission Board which is OPEC's economic slash think tank um, group, I would say. Uh, they met this week to discuss the oil market you know, policy, all those different things, where things are heading long-term, short-term, that kind of thing. Um, there was actually a really interesting quote that came out of an oilprice.com article focusing on this meeting, and it reads like this, quote, The general view was the shell patch will not be rushing into accelerating activity and production rates despite the high oil prices, something it has regularly done in the past, contributing to market oversupply and lower oil prices. So quite a few things kind of bouncing off of this quote to me. um, The first one is that this is a good thing. Um, Whenever we see OPEC's uh, Economic Commission Board, basically say that they don't expect U.S. shale, so basically the U.S. oil industry, um, to really increase production and flood the market with oil as we've seen oil prices go higher. I agree with this, and this is kind of the consensus at the moment. Whenever that happens, it's good because that means that OPEC is not going to rush to, um, they might not uh, rush to cut uh production or increased production, they are feeling more comfortable and, and more, I would say, in control of kind of where things are heading. And that way they can slowly roll back their production cuts um, and make a more balanced supply demand equation. Um, and if, for example, we weren't seeing this kind of commentary come out of OPEC, and it's not just commentary, this is actually what is happening in the U.S., um, with a bigger, while well, oil and gas companies have a bigger ESG focus, environmental, social governance, all of those things, um, we're not seeing as many um, oil rigs coming online as you know before the pandemic, and even especially during the peak of of the shale revolution. Um, but meaning that we're not going to see as much volatility and fluctuations going forward as the cycle of oil prices rising, us accelerating our production activity. And production rates because of this higher oil price and then ultimately we produce too much right and then um then we have a bust so the boom bust cycle so i think that for the most part that's generally um going to be much more suppressed going forward um so this commentary is definitely very good it's much better than opec coming out and saying we're really concerned about where um about how the u.s oil industry is conducting itself in the shale patch 
Um, so all around, all around really good news here. So shifting gears a little bit more, um, kind of working my way into looking at the U.S. rig counts. So U.S. rig counts here in the U.S. for the week ended June 18th actually uh, are up nine from the prior week, sitting at around 470 rigs uh, here in the U.S., uh, this is up 204 from the prior year. And uh, the bulk of this increase actually came from states like Wyoming, Pennsylvania, Texas, um, Permian being in Texas. Um, and while a bulk of the decreases came out of Oklahoma as well as West Virginia, and there was sort of a netting effect here where we saw increases and decreases in some, some states netting against each other and ultimately, ultimately leading to being up nine from the last week and nothing to really commentate on here. I mean, it's pretty expected rising oil prices companies are going to want to uh are going to want to um bring back rigs online and, and drill more wells so nothing too shocking there looking at oil inventories for the weekend of june 11th they actually decreased by 7.4 million barrels um from the week before uh, and this sits at around five percent below the five-year average and i believe on the prior show uh, there was another decrease where they were sitting at 4% below the five-year average. So we keep on marching further and further down, which is, I would argue, a good thing considering um, we've seen quite a supply glut, and I think that's slowly dwindling over time. And it'll be really interesting to see once, you know, give it one to two years from now, how these numbers are looking and, and how once this pandemic has really gotten behind us, because in a lot of ways it has, um, but we're still not traveling internationally as much as probably used to, as well as business travel. Um, so anyways, it'll just be really interesting to see where oil inventories go. And this is really a good gauge for those that don't know um, about where supply is sitting at here in the U.S. of this oil inventory report said, hey, we increased by X million barrels uh, barrels in our in our supply, then that's adding more pressure on the supply side of things, which could lead to weighing on oil prices and that decreasing. And low oil prices is not good for anybody, but so is high, high oil prices too, because it leads to, I would say, possibly bad behavior. Um, so I, th- I think we're in a good spot right now. So... Shifting gears again, um, looking at the articles that I wanted to t- touch on today on the show, um, I found one on, on again <laughs> on oilprice.com. I feel like everything I quote is from oilprice.com, but they have great uh, articles and resources, really giving a good grip on the industry, and they really provide a pretty fair look and outlook on, on the space, which isn't necessarily the same at all media outlets. So in this article, they discussed uh, how Shell is possibly going to be exiting from its Permian Basin assets and really where this all began um, because all you, if you're following the industry or you work in the industry, you know someone that works in the industry, it's kind of the big talk right now is Permian, Permian, Permian. So you're seeing a massive oil and gas company talking about exiting the Permian will make you think, well, why? And well, (laughs) lucky for you, I'm actually about to explain that. So um, it all really began whenever a Dutch court shell, really Dutch shell, uh, Dutch company, um, was ordered to reduce its carbon emissions by 45% from 2019 levels 
by the year 2030. 2030 seems to be a year where a lot of things are supposed to happen. It'll be interesting to see if they actually do. Um, that is my joke of the day. But uh, and they have to do that uh, immediately, is reduce those emissions immediately. So the judge in this case actually held that Shell should be liable for emissions caused by the use of its products. And I'll just say that again. The judge ruled that Shell is going to be liable for emissions caused by the uses of its products. So these emissions are actually classified as S3 emissions. So it's kind of like, you know, in some ways you can make the comparison of buying junk food and then eating it and then you gain weight and then being mad at the company for selling you junk food or something along those lines. Um, probably not a fair comparison. Um, but anyways, that was actually a pretty bad comparison. But anyways, uh, S3 emissions are actually emissions that are created by the use of a company's products. So such as you know emissions generated by Shell suppliers, uh, as well as their customers, you know, buying gas and, and oil products and byproducts, which are really, which really do make modern life possible. So there's something to be said about um, the long-term use for oil and gas products, but it'll be interesting to see how this continues to play out as there's a big debate surrounding S3 emissions, which I actually did not know about until um, discussing um, this with some of my uh, coworkers is that there's a big debate on where companies should be responsible for S3 emissions because the byproduct of the use of their products. Um, and this ruling really does mark a landmark in that kind of raging debate, I would say. Um, and it brings this to this point where now if they have to comply immediately, well, what does immediately mean? And it really, I think it means that they need to start selling assets and really push more into a green future. And that may lead it to the reason of this article is selling its acreage in the Permian Basin. So Shell does hold 260,000 acres uh, of oil and gas assets in the Permian, which accounts for around 6% of Shell's global production. So thinking about this isn't just happening in a silo, um, Going forward, this is going to be an everyone issue where what if there's all these kinds of rulings that come out that say, hey, you need to comply with this now. Well, is there just going to be a bonanza of, you know, selling oil and gas assets to comply? Right. I mean, you know, your guess is as good as mine, but that'll be really just really interesting how that plays uh, going forward. And it brings into this forefront, in my mind, I heard it on another show earlier I was listening to about holistic capitalism or ESG, environmental social governance, and focusing on how and how this will fit in with focusing on the full life cycle of a company, its products, and its impact, both past, present, and future. And it's certainly possible that this could roll out into other courts and become something that not just oil and gas companies have to work through. Um, but what I mean by this holistic uh, approach to ESG to, to companies is that is that they have to think about not only how they get their raw materials for their products, how they make their products, uh, and, and how they sell the products, and ultimately 
how other products are consumed or used. What I mean about how they think of it is how they think about their emissions during that whole process. So that is, you know, a trillion dollar question about how that will play out forward, but it's just something interesting to kind of keep in mind. So anyways, Shell thinking about selling or possibly selling some of their Permian assets to comply with this ruling. This might be a thing that happens now um, where there's rulings and you have to comply with them. So something to think about going forward. Another article uh, that I actually found similar place, you guessed it, oilprice.com is, quote, Canada oil pipeline companies throw money at energy transition. So in this article, it talks about Canadian pipeline companies um, announcing plans to develop a massive carbon transportation and sequestration system. Um, I had to look up what sequestration was. Uh, It's supposed to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere. So however that ends up playing out in the system, um, this article didn't really go into details about it. Uh, But it's interesting because the same company that was building the Keystone XL pipeline, which remember, I probably 10 to 15 episodes now, I discussed President Biden revoked the permit um, to cross the border with Canada uh, in the U.S. for this company, TC Energy, TC Energy. Um, they revoked, President Biden revoked the permit on his first day in office to uh, for this pipeline project, right? So then... TC Energy ultimately had to cancel this project. Um, And this is the same company that's now partnering with another company, um, I hope you're still following, with called uh, Pambina Pipeline Corporation to develop this new sequestration system. I apologize. Um, But this new system will actually transport, according to this article, 20 million tons of CO2 per year. Um, And I would imagine that this is not the first time we're going to be hearing about something similar, uh, a project similar to this. I mean, the amount of capital money that's just accelerated and flown into ESG funds and green companies, as well as traditional oil and gas companies, is is mind blowing. Um, and this will be an inroad for this industry, especially the Canadian oil industry, to get into carbon transactions. Um, which seemed to be a huge new runway for growth, right? Imagine just a new runway <laughs> um, for growth. And it'll be, it's sort of like the Wild West. And it's this is a whole new realm of, possibility of ha- possibilities of how this will play out. But it's, the point of this is that we're at the cutting edge of a lot of things that are going to shape our world going forward. And this is such an exciting time to be, looking at and being in the energy industry because I have no idea what the industry will look like in 5, 10, 20 years, but I do know that it'll be much more different and much better uh, and efficient and likely guaranteed more greener, I would say. Um, And it's just interesting seeing these companies pivot and pivot well um, given the opportunities that are presented to them. So this is not the first time that this is going to happen. And there's going to be so much change. And I think a lot of it's going to happen right here in Houston, Texas, which is where I'm recording this episode. Um, so anyways, I'm just excited about it. It's cool seeing TC Energy, you know, bouncing back from spending all of that money on Keystone XL um, and partnering with another company to build this new project that will transport all of that carbon dioxide. Um, so anyways, that is all that I have for 
today's show. I will drop the links to the reference articles in the show notes. I would encourage you to check out and also uh, check out their those specific writers um, on oilprice.com. They all have really good content. So thank you all for listening. I hope that you all have a great and safe weekend, and I'll see you next week.